Well, good morning, everybody. It's a pleasure to be here today, and I've been blessed so far this morning by the scripture reading and by the songs, and it's just a, it's just a beautiful day. So this morning, I would like to share about how we live our lives and how that actually matters and how that lines up and connects with our professed faith and how and why that is important. So have any of you ever seen one of these before? I'm guessing probably not. Does anybody know what this is? No. Okay. Well, 157 years ago, this year, this bill was printed in Richmond, Virginia. So, have a look at this, Chad. Tell me what you see on there. $2, Confederate States of America. I'm not sure who that guy is. Okay. All right. So, you mentioned the guy on there. So, he was obviously important enough at one point to put on currency of a country, a country that almost was a country anyway. So, I'm glad you brought him up because he is actually the most interesting part of this bill. And by the way, this is a genuine bill, genuinely replica, actually. So <laughs> I actually made it myself on my printer at work and then rubbed, uh, rubbed tea and coffee on it so it looks old. But the guy on this bill is the most interesting part of this bill. And his name is Judah P. Benjamin. Have you ever heard of this man before? Now, why is he significant? The reason he is significant today and at this time was because he was, A, a leader in the Confederacy. What I think is the most interesting part about this man is that he was the first professing Jew to be elected to the U.S. Senate in the United States of America in 1850. I think, 1852, he was elected a U.S. senator. So that was before the South seceded, obviously. And so he became the first practicing Jew to be a U.S. senator. Now, there had been ethnic Jews prior to him who were part of the U.S. Senate, but they had all recanted Judaism and had converted to Christianity or Catholicism or something like that, and they were no longer Jews. So he was significant for that reason. But you know, when the South seceded, he continued with the South. And what is shocking to me is that this man, Judah Benjamin, was a slave owner in the South. And he also, as a practicing Jew, celebrated Passover. Now think about the irony of that. The Passover is the celebration of the Israelites' freedom from slavery and freedom from Egypt. Yet this man celebrated the Passover meal, most likely served by slaves. He had 140 slaves. And even if they didn't serve him the meal, surely they cleaned the dishes afterwards or at least grew the food in the garden. So think about the irony of this man who could celebrate freedom of his people in one of his most important holidays, the Passover, 
and yet at the same time own slaves. How could somebody do that? How could they be okay with that kind of behavior? So what this man had missed is the application of his own faith. So he celebrated something, yet the way he lived his life did not match what he celebrated. So how was his knowledge and his history not enough to make him the kind of person that could consistently practice his own faith? And this made me wonder. It's like, if this guy could miss it so big, and like the most obvious thing in the world was completely like beyond his vision that he couldn't even see what he was doing, what possibly might I do or say or think or act that doesn't line up with what I say I believe and what I actually celebrate as truth? And what are the possibilities that all of us perhaps have things that we believe that we don't practice and that we're blind to? Because we all know that's very possible. And the problem with being deceived is you actually think you're right. And so this man, Judah P. Benjamin, he was an advocate for slavery. He didn't just put up with it. He was actually like a forefront um, voice for advocating for slavery. And in fact, he was the second in command in the Confederate States of America, right next to Jefferson Davis. And he made it memorialized forever on a $2 bill. And that's how we remember him now. Um, everything he did, more or less, was wasted. Partly, perhaps, because his faith did not line up with his actions. Knowing something and believing in something is not the same thing as doing something. So if we all just took what we knew, think about it for a second. If, if all you had to do was know something and then it worked, then think about it. With what we know about science and nutrition and exercise, all you would have to know is that you should eat healthy and that you should exercise and that you should get your vitamins and bingo, you would be healthy, right? That's not how it works at all. The hard part isn't knowing how to be healthy. The hard part is actually being healthy and doing the things you got to do to be healthy. It's not enough to know how to handle your finances. You can read a book on finances, and you can know in your mind that you should not spend more than you make and that you should probably avoid uh, credit card debt and things like that, and you can know that, and most people do know that. Yet, there's a lot of people who are upside down in their finances because knowing is not the same thing as doing. If all we had to do was to prepare for something, was just know about it and maybe do a couple Google searches and learn about it, and we didn't have to actually do anything, we'd all be a lot more successful. I know I would because I like to research things and figure out how to how to make it happen without actually doing it, because that's a whole lot more fun, I think. Um, case in point, most of you know that I'm fascinated by real estate investing and all that sort of thing. And so I've consumed 
more hours than I care to admit in podcasts and audiobooks and regular books learning about real estate investing. And uh, it was kind of ironic because one of the podcasts I was listening to, they're like, a common problem is that people just like to consume all this content and never actually buy any real estate. So um, I was like, man. And they actually met this guy at a conference. And people go to these conferences. I've never gone, by the way. Uh, and they pay all this money for these conferences to learn how to flip houses or wholesale or have rentals and that sort of thing. And this guy said he met a guy there who said over the past few years he had spent upwards of $80,000 on conferences and resources to learn about investing in real estate. So he asked him, he said, how many, how many deals have you done in real estate? Zero. He was getting ready to do some deals. He's like, well, with that kind of money, you could have bought a few deals. So it's not about the information that man knew. It was about the application of the information that he did not do. So if all it took was believing the right things, our lives would be super easy and we could accomplish unbelievable amounts of things. Think about the self-help book industry. That is a huge industry because people like the feeling they get when they read the book and it kind of inspires them, but it sort of gives them that feeling that they're doing something without actually doing something. And so like if reading self-help books actually worked, we'd probably all be like, triathlon athletes who were super healthy and had time for all the things that were important to us. But yet, if you look around, that's just not how it's working out for most people. Most of us know the stuff that we need to know, and most of us believe the right stuff for better lives and for how to live. So the problem is never, is almost never, a lack of information but it is almost always a lack of application. So Jesus and the scriptures definitely agrees with this. For example, in Mark today, what did it say? Who are the brothers and sisters of Jesus? Did you catch that? Yeah, those who do my will. Those who do my will. Those are the ones that are the brothers and sisters of Jesus. Jesus often asked people to do things, and the doing is simply what makes the difference. Believing is great, that's part of the process, but if you believe and you don't do anything about it, then it's so empty, there's really nothing there. Think about the people that Jesus was impressed with over the years. What, how, how did he respond to the centurion when he came to Jesus for healing. What was, what was his response? Does anybody know right offhand? Yeah, yeah, he did. So here's this man. I may mean, think like a Navy SEAL character. And in a religious group, we would say that guy probably wouldn't be the one. But Jesus did because... He actually followed through with his faith. Whatever faith he had, he backed it up with action. And then think about how Jesus responded when the disciples said, I will die with you. I'm ready to die for you. He didn't, he wasn't nearly as, wow, unbelievable. You're doing amazing. His reaction to the centurion was so much more, wow, this is great. 
than it was to his disciples when they said they would die for him. Now, why is that? It's because they said the right thing. They believed the right thing. They thought that they actually meant that. But Jesus knew that they didn't have what it took to back it up. They weren't going to back it up. So he was not impressed by that. Jesus was impressed by those who actually backed up what they said they would do and actually followed through by doing it. We have to act on what we do, otherwise we will fail. It doesn't matter what we believe. Because if we believe all the right things but don't do anything with our belief, our faith becomes feeble and frail and fragile. And if you do that long enough, you end up with what James talks about. We end up with a faith that is dead. And a dead faith is not going to survive when it gets tested. Jesus repeatedly called people to follow him. He asked them to follow him, and frankly, following Jesus is a lot more difficult than simply believing Jesus. It's a lot easier to just believe Jesus. Jesus asked these people to live a life that reflected their faith and trust in God. God is most honored in our living an active faith in him. And that's why Jesus has invited people to follow him. Following him does require that we believe in him. But I think very often, at least for me, believing in Jesus sometimes morphs into believing things about Jesus. And that's an entirely different thing. Because believing things about Jesus isn't believing in Jesus and it's not following him. It's really easy to believe about him, but believing in him is fundamentally a trust relationship where you are believing in him that if you live and follow Jesus, you will have a certain result in the end. What kind of things fuel enduring faith that shows up in our daily lives? How do we develop that real-world faith, so that we don't end up like Judah Benjamin, professing one thing and then living another thing. And by the way, there was a point in time where on the Senate floor, and this story is contested a little bit, nobody knows for sure if it's actually true, where Judah Benjamin was accused by a fellow senator of being a Jew dressed in Egyptian clothing. He was even mocked in his own time for his hypocrisy. So how do we prevent that in our own lives? We have to develop a real-world faith that actually works on the ground, that actually does something. I remember taking a class on ethics once upon a time, and so we were talking about different right and wrong things, and I was like, okay, so what's actually right here? And the professor's like, oh, well, that doesn't matter. That's not the point. Like, okay, well, what is the point of ethics? He said, the point is to talk about it. And I was like, oh, okay. And I'm sure Marlon could tell us a lot more about that and philosophy. The, the point isn't necessarily to determine one thing for sure, concrete, black and white. The point often is just to discuss it and think about it because in doing that, we develop ourselves and become better, more well-rounded people. Well, that doesn't work really in Christianity. When our application of faith intersects with God's faithfulness, our faith grows. 
when God prompts you to do something and you don't really want to do it, but you go ahead and follow through and do it anyway, that is when your faith grows because on the other side of that, you will see and be a witness to God's faithfulness. Like say you have you know, a struggle with somebody, uh, maybe there's conflict and things are just like not going good and you feel like God is telling you to reconcile with that person, but you don't want to because it's not going to be fun. It's not going to be pleasant. You'd rather just kind of avoid it and, and move on and kind of just continue on with your life. But when you actually follow through and reconcile that relationship and step out in faith and do the right thing that we're called to do in the Bible, on the other side, I think we've all realized this, we're like so relieved and glad we did the thing that we were supposed to do. Because on the other side of that, we saw that God was faithful and that God, regardless of what we thought and expected, he knew what was best and things worked out way better than we expected. Um, if you think about it, the other day, we heard a story about someone who was being yelled at, right? And a soft answer turns away wrath. And I've seen this over and over. Uh, if there's a mad person or someone who's upset, my first reaction is to like tell them that they're wrong and that they're being a jerk and I really have, don't have time for them and or this. But sometimes if I actually do the right thing and listen to what the Bible says, in the end, it turns out in a much better way because that's what following Jesus looks like. Whenever we step out in obedience, following Jesus, and it costs us something, our faith gets a little bit bigger and it's kind of like exercising a muscle. The more we exercise the muscle, the more it grows and the stronger our faith becomes. And as followers of Jesus, we have to say yes to Jesus, even though we don't know how it will turn out, but we do it because we know it's the right thing to do. And then on the other side, when we experience God's faithfulness, your faith will grow stronger because of it. And sometimes it doesn't always make sense, but often, retrospectively, it does make sense, doesn't it? And I think most everybody here has had an experience like that. Jesus was always prompting his disciples to do difficult things that they didn't know how to do and that they had never done before. Like, if you think about who these guys were, we had fishermen, we had a zealot who was good at anarchy, uh, we had a tax collector who worked for the enemy. We, we had these, this hodgepodge of disciples that Jesus picked, and they weren't, they weren't teachers and preachers. They were, like, very inexperienced guys uneducated, most of them, and just regular people. And yet Jesus would call them out to do things for him. Like he sent them out two by two to, um, to teach and preach and, and have power over spirits and things like that. Like that was ridiculous to them, I'm sure. Like they had never dreamed of doing anything like that. I mean, frankly, even getting out of a boat and following this random guy, that's, that's bizarre. Like really bizarre to do something like that. Like but when they did it, look how it turned out. But at the beginning, they had no idea what was going on. Or even when Jesus tells them to go find a colt tied up and get it, and if somebody's like, hey, why are you stealing this colt? You're just supposed to say, hey, the Messiah needs it. Um, you know, and I mean, that's kind of a strange thing to do, isn't it? It's kind of a small thing, but 
still, when they stepped out in faith and did it, it worked out. And we take those stories for granted. But, I mean, if, if your leader told you to go out and just take somebody's car out of the Walmart parking lot, you're like, oh, I don't know. I'm going to see if one of the, maybe the zealot will go do that because I don't want to. So, I mean, we have to step out in faith and do these things. Jesus was inviting people into a different world, not simply to believe a different set of facts or to know new things, but to do life differently. And this is what it would mean to follow Jesus. So we're going to open the Bible and look at the very end of the Sermon on the Mount. So this is in Matthew 7. So Jesus just got done teaching this amazing sermon that is really a roadmap to Christianity, and how to live as a Christian. If you simply follow the Sermon on the Mount, you will know so many things about how to live as a Christian. But knowing them isn't always the same thing as doing them because the application of these things is super hard. All right, at the end of the Sermon on the Mount... He concludes with this, and we're going to start at verse 24. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and believes them. No, not not believes them. Hears these words of mine and takes notes and thinks about them a lot. Nope, not that either. The person who hears these words of mine and acts on them or does them. That person may be compared to a wise man. Now, what is a wise person? What is your definition? I'd love to hear a few responses. What's your definition of wisdom or a wise person? What, uh, what do you think a wise person is? How would you define wisdom? Mm-hmm. Calculated decisions. Yeah, acting with discernment. Mm-hmm. Applied knowledge. Yeah, I think I think it's uh, I think it's all those things. And there's honestly there's a lot of definitions for wisdom because it's really kind of hard to it's a little bit hard to nail down sometimes what wisdom actually is. Um, in this case, I think. I think partly what this wise person is, is someone that understands that tomorrow is shaped by what you do today. Like you said, wisdom is applied knowledge. An understanding that doing and not simply believing is what shapes life. Wisdom really understands the connection between two things that are seemingly unrelated. So I was reading this book recently, and they were talking about isolated events in life. And they were comparing people who were more successful to people who were less successful. And the less successful people tended to see different things that they did in their life as being isolated. So if they did this thing here, they thought it just affected this part of their life. Whereas the successful people made a connection between the small things, like really small things, like their morning routine or 
their exercise habits or their reading habits, they made connections between that and every other area of their life. They realized that their lives and their actions were not isolated events, but were things that actually affected the whole. And that's often what wisdom is, someone who connects uh, between two things. So Jesus says, the person that does what I say is the same as someone who establishes their house on a rock, on something solid. Building a house and putting it on a foundation is not an event that you do for today or tomorrow, but it's something you do for really long ways in the future. And I think Vincent knows a little bit about this, right? Um, you just got done putting a foundation in, right? Have you poured the block yet? Your block's been laid. All right, good. Are you going to pour concrete in them? Okay, yeah. So, like, Vincent, on a scale of 1 to 10, how difficult is it to dig footers and put in rebar and then pour everything level and then get 12-inch block and stack them up and put rebar in them and pour concrete into the block cells. Like on a scale of one to 10, how difficult and strenuous is that kind of a job? Well, yeah, I mean, for anyone involved, like you or them, it's a little bit of work. Yeah, it's just pretty, pretty difficult. Yeah, it's very labor intensive. I mean, it's tough, it's dirty, it's not very fun, it's hard, and it's really hot in the summer, but you'll have a solid foundation so it would be a lot easier to just go build your house on the dirt, wouldn't it? Like you could lay some, you know, four by six beams down like you would for a shed and just nail two by fours on top. And you could have a, if you made a level, you could have a really nice house inside. But like, I mean, it wouldn't last real long, I don't think. So like how, with your foundation in the future, how much work do you expect to put into that foundation going forward? Zero, right? Yeah, that's how it should be. You should put zero work into it. Um, there's no point. If you did it right and you did it correctly and you built on a good foundation, you shouldn't have to put any more work into that foundation. If you have to put more work into the foundation, either the foundation was built improperly or it was built in the wrong place, okay? It's, other than that, there is no reason you should ever have a problem with that foundation unless we did the waterproofing wrong. That would be an issue. Um, but that's how it goes. If you, do the, if you do the foundation properly, you shouldn't have to work on it anymore. So the wisest thing that we can do is to build our life on the foundation of Jesus' teaching. It's way harder initially, and it's going to be way more time-consuming at the beginning. But ultimately, long-term, no matter how difficult it is, when we decide that this is the way we're going to live our life, the person that chooses to do it the hard way and who builds a house on the rock, the rewards are later. Up front, it's a lot more work. But in the end, the work is all worth it because you've built it on a solid foundation and now you don't have to worry about your house. You just, you just let it go and it simply is. And you don't have to worry about the foundation. Spiritual maturity is not developed by building a house on the sand. 
It is developed by the process and hard work of building a house on the rock. Wisdom trusts God's word and the outcome before it happens. So we trust God's word and the outcome before the rain comes. And if any of you have seen the valleys and things where Jesus was when he was talking about this, in the low valley where the sand was versus the side of the valleys where the rock was, um, it's my understanding that it didn't rain that often and that these valleys could go for years without ever getting enough rain to flood them and wash your house away. So if you wanted to build a quick house there, it was a really good spot to build a house, and it would probably last a few years. But then one day, you know, it would be gone because the rains would come eventually. Looking forward to what's ahead is key for wisdom. What Jesus is saying here when he's talking about the wise man and the foolish man is that it's possible to hear and believe that what he's saying here in the Sermon on the Mount is true and yet live a life that undermines that faith. He was saying that a person could hear it and build a life that undermines that faith, or you could hear it and build a life that is strong and built on the foundation of what he does, and that comes from doing it. Let's see. The one that acts on them. You know, it's interesting. The story of the wise and the foolish man, we often think of it as a story about wisdom and foolishness. And it is a little bit that in part, but more so, it's a story about doing what Jesus said. And it's basically, if you don't do what Jesus said, then you're a fool, is is what he's saying. Um, It's about applying the truth that Jesus had. Uh, Let's look at James 1. Uh, James 1.22, really quick. All right, James 1.22. But prove yourselves doers of the word and not merely hearers who delude themselves. So it's easy to be a hearer of the word. And there's a contrast. There, there is a group of people that like to hear things and delude themselves into believing that hearing it is the same thing as being a part of the movement. And it's super easy to do that, and you see that all the time today. Um, People jump on bandwagons, man. Like, if you're on social media at all, people love to be the very beginning of a new cause. They love a good cause. And a lot of times, I question, I don't know, but I don't know that a lot of these people are actually truly involved in the causes that they support. They're very quick to change their profile picture. They're quick to put a border up that says they support something. They'll hashtag something, um, but very rarely will they actually do anything that's critical. In fact, I was admonished a while back for using the wrong hashtag because apparently only Uh, non-white people could use that hashtag. And because of that, I was uh, was hurting the world around me, and I was part of the problem. I had no idea that hashtag meant anything. Um, 
And, and I was like, okay, so like we've reduced things to little tiny snippets that, I mean, really, it's a hashtag. Like, what difference does it make? It was a very obscure hashtag. And I was like, well, but for some reason, a lot of people think that that hashtag is actually accomplishing something. And I know for a fact, it's really probably not. It's not ending racism. And I'm pretty sure me using it was not promoting racism. But yet, that was the impression a group of people had. And it's very easy to be a hearer and delude ourselves and to think we're actually doing something that's relevant and helpful, but it's actually not. But prove yourselves doers of the word and not merely hearers who delude themselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks at his natural face in a mirror. For once he has looked at himself and gone away, he has immediately forgotten what kind of person he is. But one who looks intently at the perfect law, the law of liberty, and abides by it, not having become a forgetful hearer, but an effectual doer, is the man will be blessed in what he does. So when it's talking about the mirror, I believe it's talking about the word of God and how we see the reflection of ourselves in that. And as we read that and absorb that, we get a glimpse of who we actually are. But if we go away and don't let it really change our behavior, and it hasn't done any good. And the mirror was probably a really good analogy back then because, I mean, we got mirrors everywhere. I don't know that they had very many mirrors back then, and they probably weren't that great. So if you got to see a mirror, that was probably a pretty cool thing. And I'm guessing you would remember what you looked like because you'd maybe never seen yourself before. And it would be unthinkable to forget what you look like, right? But it is possible. In living our faith out, our faith gets stronger. But building on the sand is quick and easy, and it will not last. So when we are hearers of the word, but don't put it into practice, we build our faith on a weak foundation. So let's go back and to end in Matthew 7. The rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and slammed against the house. Yet it did not fall for it had a foundation on the rock. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does not act on them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and slammed against the house and it fell and great was its fall. When Jesus had finished these words, the crowds were amazed at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one having authority and not as the scribes. I have a feeling the scribes were people who were building their houses on sand. And because of that, um, that is why Jesus' teaching made such a difference and was one from authority, whereas the scribes were not doing what they were supposed to do. I mean, if you think about it, they're like, you know, you're supposed to support your elderly parents. What did they do? They're like, oh, my money's all dedicated to God. So I don't have to help my parents. Everybody could see through that. So how would you believe these people? But Jesus, on the other hand, 
was someone who taught with authority, and it made sense to people. They understood this. God wants something better for all of us because one day the water will rise, and one day we're going to walk through the valley of the shadow of death, and when we do, we will be glad that we had a strong faith and that we were doers of the word, and we had built that history and foundation of faith Unapplied faith is a lot like unapplied medicine. If you have the medicine sitting in your medicine cabinet and you need it, but you're not using it, it's not doing anybody any good. The value of it is in the application of it. It's not like having art uh, where you put art on the wall and it's valuable simply because it is and because it looks nice but art you don't have to do anything with. But truth is not art. Truth is meant to benefit us, and it only benefits you and me if we actually use it and apply it in our lives. Uh, let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for this day, and thank you for the truth that you have given to us in your word. God, I pray that um, we would be people who practice your truth, who live it out, who are doers of the word and not merely hearers only. God, it's a constant struggle in life uh, against our flesh and against doing what is easy and what's smooth and has the lowest amount of resistance. That's the thing that is tempting to do. But Lord, uh, we know that if we build on a solid foundation, if we build on truth, if we build on your word, and if we practice those things, that we will be followers of you uh, for real, and that you will be faithful to us, and um, that we can trust you and trust that your word is good. So God, I pray that you would just be with each person here, and uh, God, I pray that your blessing would be upon everybody, and I thank you for all of your goodness to us. In Jesus' name, amen.